Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, summer when the lush beauty of the Cape and the islands draw thousands of visitors. It's prime time for the hotels, the gift shops, the ferries, and restaurants in the resort areas, which depend on seasonal profits for their year-round livelihood. For years, they've also depended on temporary foreign workers assigned H-2B visas. But now, the specialized visas are in short supply, and small business owners are taking a hit to the wallet. Later in the show, comedian Jimmy O. Yang's funny memoir is both a riotous and heartfelt remembrance of his coming to the U.S. and becoming a citizen. Just in time for July 4th, this unique immigrant story is very much a love letter to America. How to American, an immigrant's guide to disappointing your parents, is our July pick for bookmarked the Under the Radar Book Club. But first, the latest H-2B visa crisis and its impact here in Massachusetts. Joining me from the print shop studio in Oak Bluffs, Martha's Vineyard, Nancy Gardella, the executive director of Martha's Vineyard Chamber of Commerce and Tourism. Welcome, Nancy. Thank you so much, Callie. And also joining me from WOMR Studio in Provincetown, Cape Cod, is Peter Hall, president and general manager of the Van Rensselaer's Restaurant and Raw Bar. He's also general manager and president of Catch of the Day Restaurant, both in South Wellfleet, Massachusetts. Hello, Peter. Hello, Callie. Well, I'm glad to have you. This is a story that is important for the state of Massachusetts, for the Cape and the Islands, but also it's quite personal to me. I spend quite a bit of time on the Cape and on Martha's Vineyard specifically, and so I became aware of what this H-2B visa situation was actually last year when there was a bit of attention paid to it because of, it seemed, new kinds of restrictions that had not been in place. So first I want to just explain to people what an H-2B visa is, and I want them to understand there are a number of specialized visas, but we're really just talking about this H-2B visa. This brings, Peter, foreign workers here temporarily, and then they go back home. So talk to me or explain as you can so people understand what an H-2B visa worker is. Well, I try to bring in line cooks, people we can train, and a lot, most of them come back year in, year out. As a rule, they're from Jamaica or from Europe, and they come for about six or seven months. And they are the core of our cooking crew. I have a professional chef in both restaurants. I have great management in both places as far as in the kitchen, but they're the next tier down. They take care of the preparation, the food cooking, and as a rule, it takes about a month to get them online to cook, and we usually like the H-2B because it, we get them two months ahead, so they're ready for the summer season. So 
what happened last year and continued this year, and, and there's actually an extra twist this year that made it worse, there are 66,000 H-2B visas given out a year, 33,000 in the first half of the fiscal year, and that starts about October 1st. For folks like yourself, Peter, and Nancy, the other businesses on, on Martha's Vineyard, um, they may put in their applications in uh, January 1st looking ahead, as Peter has just said, to get his workers in on time so he can get them trained. This comes from the Department of Labor and Department of Homeland Security. There was never enough, but now there have been restrictions to how many. And this year, they added a twist and made it a lottery. So even if you put in your application, it wasn't just a matter of even then having a chance of getting a very limited number. They put your name in a lottery and you may not get anything because it's a lottery. Talk about that, if you would, Nancy. That presents numerous challenges. The fact of the matter is coastal communities simply don't have available workforce to fill these jobs. And that's where the seasoned adult employees coming through on the H-2B visas become such a critical component to our workforce. And without those workers, it can be catastrophic to the small businesses on Cape Cod, Martha's Vineyard, and Nantucket. One of the things that is now confusing, and let's lift up William Keating, who's been out front. He represents the Cape and the Islands, and he's been out front trying to get the attention of particularly the Department of Homeland Security to say, we are hurting here. This is really impacting American small businesses. And one of the things that he has said over and over again is that the H-2B visa program now has been conflated with an immigration issue. It's been caught up in that sort of controversy about are we who are we letting in the country, why, why can't Americans do this job, blah, blah, blah. So I need both of you to explain that these jobs are not taking away from Americans. Peter. Well, we started this process last year, August 1st, and got it in on January 1st. I'm constantly looking for cooks. After we were rejected the first time and going to Puerto Rico, I went to Puerto Rico to gather some help, too, and that didn't work either. And let me pause right there and Uh, say, if going to Puerto Rico seemed like, and for some people it has worked, a solution because Puerto Ricans are Americans, so they don't need the visa. Well, one of the problems with Puerto Rico is our group went down too early because they didn't draw the HGB lottery until the end of March. And we were there in January. So we could not really offer jobs. We didn't want to have multiple amounts of jobs listed. Uh, I only have so many beds and I only have so many jobs. I'm a a small business. I I really was only going for seven visas. So we brought up one and he went home already. I hired another. He went home already. I've had ads in Craigslist and Indeed and word of mouth and calling all my associates throughout the country that I know. I, I went to UMass Amherst and We have a great network, and everyone says there's no cooks. And I'm lucky that I have two young people who have stepped forward who wanted to be servers and moved into the kitchen. But it's a lot of work to train someone who who is really young, and they're doing a great job, but it's a lot of work on my management team. Exactly. And the plain truth of the matter is a lot of people, a lot of Americans don't want these jobs. I want to play a clip from uh, CGTN America. This was done last year, which helps explain for people who are still probably struggling. Well, why don't why aren't there plenty of people around on the Cape or around on the islands? Where are the high school students? So here's a little bit more background about why it's so tough to get people to take these jobs. 
The visas are capped at 66,000 per year, but in recent years, returning workers didn't count toward that limit. This year, that exception wasn't made for them. The changes are meant to encourage the hiring of more Americans. But businesses in Cape Cod are already offering high wages, up to $20 an hour for dishwashers. And they haven't been able to attract enough Americans to do the work. So, Nancy, to be extra clear, in order to even apply for these visas, businesses have to advertise for American workers. And they do. I can tell you, Callie, that on Martha's Vineyard, we need workers, we need approximately 3,500 to 4,000 seasonal employees every year. And quite frankly, there aren't that many available workers on Martha's Vineyard to take those jobs. So we also have a short season, which also compounds our problem on the Cape and Islands. We can't apply for workers, as Peter referenced, or find them in other areas and have jobs available to them in April or May. Our jobs really come available after Memorial Day. And because of a very robust fall season, we need those people to stay through October. So we have a peculiar season our available workforce, which might be high school seniors or retirees, are not available for the kinds of jobs that we need covered. And the blessing of a robust economic situation or recovery is that visitors are coming. If we can't service them, if, we, if our restaurants can't be opened, if people can't get services, that'll take that spend in Massachusetts, potentially take it out of the state, which is now it becomes a statewide problem. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm speaking with Nancy Gardella of Martha's Vineyard Chamber of Commerce and Tourism. You just heard her. And Peter Hall of the Van Rensselaer's Restaurant and Raw Bar and Catch of the Day Restaurants. I want to highlight what you just said, Nancy Gardella. It's a robust economy. That has a double-edged sword. So maybe there might be people who would take seasonal work just a few months if they're couldn't get other work, and maybe there wouldn't be as many people wanting service were there not the economy. And so when the two come together, it's a recipe for actually not supporting the small businesses on the Cape and the Islands. That's absolutely correct, Callie. We're seeing business people have to compromise hours that they're open and available, the types of services they can offer because they simply can't find the employees to fill the need. And again, I can't emphasize this enough. We are in an area where these jobs have been posted for months, and I'm sure Peter would tell you the same thing. No one is coming forward. No Americans are coming forward. These are good-paying jobs. These jobs go from three to five months full-time, most of them, and our available workforce is already working. So we are desperate for these H-2B visa workers. Many of our employers have had relationships with their visa employees where they've been coming for a number of years. The employer has invested time and energy into training these workers 
and rely on them to come back year after year, some of them in managerial or supervisory roles. And that can all be lost when your lottery number isn't picked. So, Peter, pick up on that because Peter Hall, president and general manager of Van Rensselaer's Restaurant and Raw Bar and Catch of the Day Restaurants, because when we first talked to you, when my producer first talked to you, you had closed one day a week. I don't know if that's still the case. And you were concerned that you might not be able to open some places at all on some days, even more than that, as the season progressed. Where are you right now? Well, we were able to get open for all our shifts now, but we're not able to open all our dining rooms. Right now, not being able to open my porch affects the fact I can't work three of my American servers, and that's not healthy. One one of the problems with the H-2B process also is it's the best thing available for us all is they, they are only able to work for us, which is great for us, but not for them. Mm. Just as a comment, which means if they work illegally for a second employer, that's another job that's taken. And that means that if there's 500 or 1,000 jobs that aren't in our area or Martha's Vineyard, there's double that amount of jobs that aren't filled. So it's a double whammy. I've only had probably two applicants so far, and you have to always check references and everything. It's very hard. So did you get any H-2B visa workers? Were you lucky enough to get some, either from the original 66,000 or the additional 15,000 that were added after a great amount of pressure was brought to bear on the Department of Homeland Security? I actually reapplied for the second batch on May 31st. The lottery was June 4th. We were told we'd know within a week, and they'd already done the lottery. It was between the 4th and 6th on the lottery. And I heard the 27th of June, that I didn't get it. Right now, we're, we're scrambling to train young people who have never cooked in their lives to become broiler cooks, fry cooks, garmages, breakfast cooks. It's doubled the effort, but at least now J1s came in mass, finally. We have people to train, but it's from ground A. I don't want to get distracted from H-2B visas, but the J-1s you referred to are students. And so there is potentially some availability for those coming over on those visas uh, who are students to maybe do the work. But you've just mentioned one of the big issues, which is training all of these people to a level of uh, service that people expect when they come to a resort area. So now, you know, all of this has taken place as the season was ramping up. You know, Memorial Day is really the, the kickoff. But you're, we're, we're heading into July 4th. You know, this is the season now. <laughs> so what do you expect to happen as you have really the workers that you're going to have in place? How, how are you going to manage? Is everybody working overtime? Well, all my managers are training people constantly. And unfortunately, there's more trainees than there are managers on and we try to make sure everyone has at least one day off as of last week i only had two of my j1s here out of 16 all during may they were also rejected at their embassies Hmm. finally we got them through a different group but they we have to teach them everything in sign language more so reading language even if their english good they have to be able to understand what they have to prepare and most of it's very foreign to them the new travel ban that's been imposed from certain countries, will that impact the J-1s, those students that now you're using as filler? 
I think the thing that rejects them the most is the ones who disappear into the country from certain countries. Okay. Makes it so we can't get them from those countries. Got you. All right. Um, just to just to, so people have a uh, an understanding uh, and even a more personal understanding, if you will, of of what this all looks like on the ground when you are the person in the resort area trying to get a meal at one of Peter's restaurants or or get a hotel space. Um, I became aware of H two B visas and their importance last summer because Donovan, um, who's a bartender at Nancy's, one of my favorite restaurants in Oak Bluffs was not able to come in until very late in the season. And that was after uh, the expectation that he wouldn't make it at all because of a lot of these concerns. Um, here's a clip from a Dirty Water Media video report of Donovan, who is very popular, making a drink called Dirty Banana. I'm with the famous Donovan of Donovan's Reef here down in Oak Bluffs. Now, your most famous drink is what? The Dirty Banana, of course. All right, let's make it. Start with a banana. Okay. Okay, so I'm making two. Like one banana for two drinks. All right, okay. perfect. Banana, vodka, coffee. Gotta love liquor. the vodka. Yep. Irish cream. Yep. Little Bailey's. Yep. Banana liqueur. In my uh, secret sauce. What? What is it? It's my secret sauce. <laughs> so where are you from? I'm from Jamaica. So is this is this a secret sauce from Jamaica? Yeah, I brought you from Jamaica. They did their recipe. So I played that not because I like a good cocktail, I do, but uh, but to make the point that uh, Donovan is uh, one of the people, well-known, part of the family, if you will, at Nancy's. The manager there talked about, you know, taking a hit from his absence. Of course, he had people to fill in at the bar. But if you've ever been to Nancy's, when Donovan is there, the line is wrapped around the block to get both his famous dirty banana and anything else that he makes. So um, we're talking about real dollars here, real money, Nancy Gardella. We certainly are. I mean, the overall visitor spend on Martha's Vineyard in 2016 was $161 million. That's $161 million of other people's money coming into our economy, Callie. And that results in a tremendous tax revenue for the state of Massachusetts. So while we are talking about small businesses, the, the beauty of the small businesses that dot Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket, and Cape Cod, what we're talking about is really tax revenue for the state of Massachusetts that comes out of visitors' pockets. And I don't know anything that's better than other people's money. And when businesses aren't able to stay open, they're not able to generate those kind of dollars for the state, it has a domino effect. It's bad for business locally, but it's bad for business across the state. Nancy, you said, you know, we're going to lose because our own government works against us. Talk about what you mean there. Well, a couple of things. There was a there was a GOP forwarded um, bill that that had come forward to allow for some H two B cap relief that was defeated just the other day, and quite honestly held hostage because the language in the bill was affecting DACA recipients. It was funding for border wall. I mean, it had so much. Um, other unrelated language in it that it became impossible to pass. That's our own government working against small businesses. I have to tell you, though, I can't commend the efforts of Congressman Keating and his staff 
more in forwarding this issue for us on a national level. They're doing, I can't imagine uh, any office, any congressional office doing more than they're doing. We know that our own um, our own state representatives, both Senator Sear and Representative um, Hernandez, are um, amazingly supportive. But it feels like our federal government is turning a deaf ear to our plight. And by the way, Cape Cod, Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket, it's just a small pocket of communities across the country going through the same thing. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with Nancy Gardella and Peter Hall. We're talking about how the H-2B visa crisis, which has hit the Cape and Islands, bottom line is uh, having a greater impact than just the Cape and Islands. I want to pick up on that because we're concentrating on the Cape and the Islands because this is our conversation and it's and it's local. But we're talking about communities across the country. So there's big stories about golf courses and cooks needed and housekeeping needed in Colorado, in Philadelphia, um, you name it. There's all kinds of places that are lacking. Now, I'm going to rest on the golf courses for just one second because the president's uh, Mar-a-Lago estate, well-known for its golfing facilities, they've applied uh, and have used very frequently H-2B visa workers. So you'd think somebody could get it straight that this is not an immigration issue. This is, as Nancy Gardella has said, a small business issue. These, again, are temporary foreign workers who come and leave. Then they come back the next year, and then they leave again. And they only come and leave after those jobs have been offered to Americans vigorously. You are required to advertise um, all up and down uh, your area and beyond that. And when you don't then get a response, Peter Hall, then that's how these workers have uh, moved into place to help you out. So let me ask this question. And by the way, Nancy mentioned the bill that just got voted down this week. That was a part, if people are trying to remember, that was a part of the overall general immigration bill that the Republican caucus was trying to put forward. But to Nancy's point, the H-2B visas properly should not have been a part of that bill because it's not about immigration. So um, what do you do now looking forward? How do you um, prepare for what seems to be, uh, uh, maybe now, an ongoing problem every year? Well, we're looking at our menus. We're looking at the hours that we work. Uh, I've been lucky. Mo- most of my managers have been with me for a long time, so we can concentrate on making it easier for us. It means our menus are going to be cut down. The hours, in the end, if this is going to persist, it will, in the end, what they intended to do, which was hire more Americans, is going to mean less jobs as far as a lot of the my, my co-owners in the area and everything else. Uh, it's it's been a very trying, stressful time trying to find help. Uh, telling my cooks, I got people hopefully on the come, J1s, and every time I turned around saying they were rejected, going for the H2Bs and then hearing they're rejected again, and advertising, and even on Indeed, we're getting maybe one hit a week, and usually it's from someplace and someone who's never done anything yet. And you do need some real quality workers to start with in certain spots so you can train the others. 
have you started to hear from customers, um, from someone like myself who might be coming through saying, gee, uh, two years ago when I was here, you were open 24-7 or whatever you were open. And now it's it's hard for me to get the special whatever I've been looking forward to because you're only open on this day or, or you're not available or somebody can't make it or whatever. Well, we were finally able to open every day. And yes, I heard from a lot of my customers. I had to call certain reservations up and say, we're going to be closed on Tuesdays. We just do not have the help to get through it to make sure we can handle you properly. Did they understand uh, now why? That we're open. Did they understand why? Yeah, 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 yes, they did. Uh, it was, they also are very frustrated by the process. When you talk to them about what I've done, one of the things I told them was I couldn't have written this book that's happening to me, my wife and my businesses. It's just been sublime. We've never had difficulty finding help. As my waiting crew, which always comes back, bartending my managers, uh, my cooks, we're only talking seven out of about 22. And right now, if I had three H2Bs, I'd be all set. Mm-hmm. But instead, we have to train to such a degree that we're cutting our menu back just so we can take care of our customers. Um, I also want to point to Nancy Gardella. A, now, this is an older study, so people can, can critique that as they will. But um, the conservative think tank American Enterprise Institute did a 2011 study and found that for each H-2B worker, actually helped create 454 additional jobs. Um, and what they did was compare the number of H-2B visas approved related to the, em- the employment rate in the particular areas around the country for U.S. residents. So here is an institute that, you know, ostensibly doesn't have a dog in the fight. Uh, this is not an immigration issue as they, as they viewed it, as we've said. Um, and they saw it as a, as a way to hire Americans, as Peter has said, as, as you have said. Um, but still the confusion exists. Nancy Gardella, Congressman William Keating has invited Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen to come to the Cape to see what the policy is doing. Um, no response yet, but um, I, would that help? I, I, I would imagine that would be eye-opening for her. I would certainly hope so. I mean, um, a boots-on-the-ground experience to see what we're talking about in, let's face it, one of the most treasured areas in the United States for summer and fall vacations. And this is an area with cachet, global cachet. Um, it, to see the catastrophic impact that these decisions have on this area, I think that would be very eye-opening. I would certainly welcome the, the secretary. Well, uh, Congressman Keating has asked for that because, um, as you've both said, he's very frustrated about the local businesses being squeezed. And to that point, Nancy Gardella, we have Peter Hall here on the phone. I can't tell you how many people we talked to who didn't have a moment to talk because they are working 24-7. These are managers or owners trying to keep their businesses going, whatever they may be. And they wanted to express their frustration and unhappiness about this, but but couldn't because they didn't have enough staff to cover for them while they came to have this conversation. So I'm appreciated, uh, Peter. But but my point to you, Nancy Gardella, is uh, we, you already have very small businesses. How many of these will not be able to shift around as Peter has done or hang on um, and, you know, overtime or retrain or all of that, and they'll just go away? What's, what is your 
What's your estimate right now or concern about that impact? Well, Kelly, that that's a well-stated version of one of our worst nightmares. Um, if this if this is going to be the long-term position of the administration, then we are in serious trouble. If this is short-term, our small businesses are committed to offering the best that they can, and they will make the changes necessary this year. But I know that they simply won't have the stamina, and quite frankly, they won't have the ability to operate long without being able to plug those huge gaps. And Kelly, I so appreciate that you are taking an educational stance in this interview, reminding your listeners that these are jobs that Americans have not taken, have had every opportunity to take before employers turn to H-2B visa holders. And also, lots of people have, uh, Americans have appreciated and come to know the H-2B workers who've come back, as I've said about the Donovans of the world, every year. So it's all of a piece. And again, these are, you know, the landscape workers, the housekeepers, the cooks, the cleaners, uh, all of the the jobs uh, that a number of Americans are not interested in, but also, in this case, a very short season as well. So that's, it's a combination. I wonder if um, those of us who will be coming to these areas this year and uh, find something missing that we have had in the past because of the impact of these H-2B visas or the lack thereof, of our responses to not William Keating because he knows about it, but people come from all over the world and the United States, I think I want to make clear, to the Cape and the Islands. And they'll go back and either... Uh, do one of two things. They will not return next year because they couldn't get everything they wanted, which is the great fear for all of you, or and or will go back and say, well, what's going on here? And, and why can't I? And, and, and complain to maybe some of their representatives and perhaps some of this will change. But I know, Nancy, you are concerned that there has got to be a very quick fix to the misperception about a privilege, you say, that does not, in fact, exist. Exactly. Because, Kelly, let's face it, when we're on vacation, we only care about what we want and enjoying ourselves. And while I'm delighted to know that Peter's customers were understanding when he called them and had to let them know that he had to be closed one night, and I'm even more delighted that he's now open all the nights he wants to be, you know, the point is, if people wanted, if they can't get the reservations or they can't get the services, or their rooms can't get cleaned, and on and on and on, that all those wonderful service workers, all the tasks that they perform, if those can't get done in a timely manner, people will choose other destinations. They'll be understanding of why, but at the end of the day, they're not going to come back. Peter, last word? Even though I am open seven days, we're really battling to be able to open the whole place up and make sure the product comes out on a timely basis. Uh, It's really hard to be able to train people in one week, which is what we've been basically given with our J1s this year. And our American kids, who finally, a few of them showed up who were not expected back, even though they were invited in the spring, and all of a sudden their parents said, we're going to the Cape. So they showed up to my door, which was great. Uh, I'm very lucky 
and fortunate that I have such a good returning crew. And another issue that has not been brought up is that on the H2B process, we're battling with the farms too. And they all need help, and they're part of the H2B process. The industries that we're in, the lodging and landscaping and restaurants, we're, we're like, I think, 15% of the whole H2B allotment. So we're, we're a very small amount that just seems like we're really getting picked on. Well, um, I wish you all uh, luck, and I hope that someone's listening and that uh, this part of the misunderstanding can get corrected and um, somehow the H2B visa program will, will, will be back in place and your restaurants and all the other businesses um, will be will have the help that they need. And this is more than the Cape and the Islands, as we said. This is really about Massachusetts' bottom line as well. So I thank you both for joining me. Thank you, Thank Kelly. you so much for this opportunity. Nancy Gardell is the executive director of the Martha's Vineyard Chamber of Commerce and Tourism. Peter Hall is president and general manager of Van Rensselaer's Restaurant and Raw Bar and the general manager and president of Catch of the Day Restaurant, both in South Wellfleet, Massachusetts. Coming up, he plays the grumpy tech guy on HBO's Silicon Valley, the one with the heavy Chinese accent and slacker vibe. It was a breakout role for stand-up comedian Jimmy O. Yang, whose checkered path to success is great humorous fodder for his new book, How to American, An Immigrant's Guide to Disappointing Your Parents. It's our July selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. Comedian Jimmy O. Yang describes himself as a fresh-off-the-boat immigrant to America. He was 13 when he came from Hong Kong, barely speaking English. But in the next years, he found his way to the stage as a stand-up comedian and into a thriving TV and film career. Three years ago, he became an American citizen. Now he's chronicled his hilarious road to success and citizenship in his new memoir, How to American, An Immigrant's Guide to Disappointing Your Parents. It's our July selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. And Jimmy O. Yang joins me on the phone from the Marketplace Studios in Los Angeles. Welcome to Under the Radar, Jimmy. Hello, thanks for having me. Well, I'm delighted to have you. Your book is awfully funny, which I guess it should be since you're a comedian. <laughs> yeah, expectation is high out here, you know? <laughs> I'm glad I delivered. Um, why did you decide you wanted to write a book? I want to take some time off of stand-up. I know how to be funny on stage, but stand-up, there's such a format that you have to get a laugh every few seconds. Whereas the book, I can be a little more emotionally honest and funny at the same time. Uh, and I also just want to write a real immigrant story that's not any political partisan, no no agenda, it's just a real story about me so people can kind of see behind the curtains a uh, first-person point of view of what it's like to be an immigrant in America. So as I've said, you arrived in America as a 13-year-old. I'd like people to get a sense of your voice in your memoir. So why don't you read from your prologue? Yeah, prologue. 
I love the word prologue. It makes me sound like a real author. This is great. <laughs> when my family immigrated to America from Hong Kong, I was a 13-year-old boy who looked like an 8-year-old girl. I didn't even speak enough English to understand the simplest American slang. On my first day of school in America, a girl came up to me and said, What's up? I stared at her, confused. I had never heard this term before. She repeated, What's up? I looked up into the sky to check what is up there. There wasn't anything up there. I looked back down at her and replied, I don't know. She finally realized I was either foreign or severely mentally handicapped. So she explained, what's up means how are you doing? Oh, okay. Why didn't you just say that? I'm up. Thank you. Then someone in the distance screamed out, heads up! I turned to reply thinking it was another American greeting. Instead, I was greeted by a weird oblong object flying right at me and hitting me straight in the gut. I later learned that was an American football. <laughs> okay, so now everybody's going to get it. It's a memoir, and memoir kind of has a heavy title to it, like it's real serious. And yours is serious in parts, but you always have the comedic lens going on in telling your story. And that was real truth there about that 13-year-old mm -hmm. what's up exchange. I laughed out loud at the beginning and kept laughing through the rest of it, I have to say. So more interesting stuff as revealed in your memoir. You learn to speak English by watching black entertainment television's Rap City. BET Talk about Rap that. City. <laughs> Tell us about That's that. That's my favorite show. Like, I always thought in order to learn about a culture, it's not just about the language. It's about all the nuances and all the slangs. Like, what's up? Like, I didn't understand that. And BET was the epitome of that. So I thought if I could understand BET, uh, where it's Rap City and Comic View, I could understand America, you know? And, and in a way, BET was like the highest form of English. It's very challenging and difficult. I always said, like, 50 Cent was like the calculus of English. <laughs> So if I can understand 50 Cent, I can understand America. And, and it's so much about the culture. Each music video was like a slice of the American dream that someone was living, you know, and I wanted to be part of that. And Comic View, it wasn't just about jokes. It wasn't just about the five minutes of stand-up that was on stage. It's about cultural stereotypes that how one race sees each other and how one person sees the world in America. So to me, that was a huge learning experience watching BET. So your coming to the comic stage was really, you kind of did a zigzag. You know, you came over, you got the English down, you learned from BET, you went to college, and I bet a lot of people would be interested in your story about actually paying attention to your commencement speaker, who ended up being <laughs> your boss later. Uh, please talk about that. The incredible Mike Judge who created Beavis and Butthead and King of the Hill at the time and Office Space turned out to be my commencement speaker. I didn't think anybody cool had went to UCSD. So it was surprising to have him there. And he talked about how he was a physics major and he just didn't want to do that. He was working in, you know, the tech world in the 80s and he just hated every part of it. So he quit his job, his safe job that everybody said he should be doing. And he became a touring musician and eventually found his passion in animation and comedy. And he created Beavis and Butthead. And I was like, oh, my God, that really spoke to me because I was an economics major. Not that I loved economics. It was just the easiest major that still would have pleased my Asian parents. So when I was graduating, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just kind of knew that 
I wanted nothing to do with economics. So after hearing Mike Judge's speech, I was like, oh my God, this guy's just an average guy that graduated UCSD just like me. And he didn't have any connections in Hollywood and he made it. So that really propelled me into really full-time pursuing um, my stand-up career, which led to me becoming an actor later, which eventually five years later led to an audition for a show called Silicon Valley. And I got the job and my boss and the creator of that show was Mike Judge. I mean, that is truly a full circle moment, <laughs> you yeah, know, don't you he think? Had, <laughs> he had no idea I was in that commencement speech. It wasn't like nepotism or anything like that. I wish it worked that way. But I just auditioned. I got the job. And the first day at the table read, that's when I told him, I'm like, hey, Mike, you were my commencement speaker, man. And, and thank you for all that stuff. And he's just so humble. And it's just so cool. Like, we're like pretty close friends. And we just go get beers together now. So I think a lot of people who are listening to this are going, oh, I know who this guy is. Um, he's Jin Yang on Silicon Valley. He's also right. the author of the memoir that we're talking about, How to American and Immigrant's Guide to Disappointing Your Parents. So I want to play a clip from Silicon Valley for those who don't know your, at this point, best-known role. Here is Broken Fridge. This one, this one. This one, this one. I get it, Jin Yang. The refrigerator's broken. The ice cream is a melting. Let me guess, is it because it's warm? Yes. Fine, I'll call the repairman and he'll come here and fix it post haste. No, I want a new fridge, a smarter fridge like this. $14,000 for a smart fridge? Unlike you, I now work for a living. I'm not gonna drop that kind of dough on a fridge. I ordered it already. I buy it for myself. Then why are you talking to me about it? To make you feel bad. Because you're fat and a poor. <laughs> you're a very popular character on Silicon Valley. So oh, your yeah. fans are now reacting to that going, yay, yay, Jin Yang. Is that a role you love? I love it so much because in a way it's like playing a version of myself when I first came to this country. But I'm able to do it very authentically because I understand that character and even the accent I drew from my past and I drew from my mom and my relatives back home. And it's in a way, you know, he seems like the docile, quiet immigrant, but he's so diabolical as you heard in this clip. He's kind of an a-hole. And it's just so fun to play that. <laughs> and again, for people who are just making that full circle connection, Mike Judge is the creator of Silicon Valley. So there you are working for your commencement speaker. So it does pay off mm -hmm. to listen. So your path to comedy, Jimmy O. Yang, was not a smooth one, as we've said. And I have to say, all the various legs of your journey are pretty funny. Uh, one of my favorite stops was when you were a strip club DJ. Uh, you know, that's just not a stop that we hear about, let's say, from Seinfeld. <laughs> right? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> talk, talk about that. Ah, <laughs> uh, so... After I graduated college, I quit this internship that my dad set me up with at Smith Barney, a really prestigious like finance firm, to much of his disappointment. And I had three jobs. I sold used cars during the day. I worked at the comedy club in the evening. And then I would go DJ at a strip club at night and this really seedy strip club called Fantasy Showgirl in uh, San Diego. Partly, it was kind of fantasy to be a strip club DJ because growing up watching BET Rap City, watching like ludicrous music videos, Ludicrous, the rapper, not, I'm not actually using an adjective, ludicrous <laughs> music videos. 
You know, like being a strip club DJ, that was like a dream for like a dumb 22 year old kid. So I was like, oh my God, this is going to be amazing. But I soon realized it turned out to be nothing like the glamorous life I'd imagine on like, say like a big pimping music video. And I realized people that work there, they didn't have a choice but to work there because they've been to jail many of times and they're all gang affiliated. And now here I am, this UCSD college graduate working there. But I was very good at my job. Uh, according to the owner, sales went up 44%. Lap dance sales went up 44% the first week I was there. So, you know, and then he eventually offered to open a strip club for me to run it for him, which sounded like a dream. And it was one of those crossroads I really had to think, do I really want to be like the underground strip club king? Or do I try my hands at stand-up comedy another day? If people are just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and my guest is Jimmy O'Yang. He's author of How to American, The Immigrant's Guide to Disappointing Your Parents. It's our July selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar book club, and I think a perfect book to read this July 4th holiday. One of the things that you make clear in all through your book, you and your dad and your mom have a loving relationship, but you spent most of your young years growing up with your dad. They weren't divorced. Uh-huh. It was just it's a complicated situation people will have to read about. But in any case, your dad was very underwhelmed when he discovered that you were, <laughs> that's, that's the word I'm using, you were going to go for a career in comedy. And I want you to read from your book uh-huh. this uh, passage about what was happening there. So it starts on page 12. Yeah. <clears throat> a few years ago, I mustered up the courage to invite my parents to my stand-up comedy show. It was at one of the nicest clubs I'd ever performed in. Brad Garrett's Comedy Club inside the MGM in Las Vegas. When I was 10, my family and I stayed at the MGM on a vacation from Hong Kong to Vegas, so surely my parents would know this was a legitimate five-star establishment. I sat them down at the best seat in the house and made sure all of their foods and drinks were taken care of. They were the VIPs, and I was the star that night. I had a killer set. Everyone in the audience was laughing head over heels. I finally proved to my parents that all the time I spent doing talk shows at the comedy club wasn't in vain. After the show, my parents came out and saw the crowd of adoring fans surrounding me. They waited in line with everyone, and I made sure to take my time greeting each audience member so they could see just how loved I was. When they finally reached the front of the line, My excited comedian friend Jack went up to my dad and asked him, So, what do you think about your son? He was great, right? No, he's not funny. My dad flatly replied, I don't understand. Jack's face dropped as he awkwardly looked over to me, but there were no tears on my face, not even a hint of surprise. Most people would have been devastated at their parents' disapproval, but that was the exact answer I expected from my dad. I knew he wasn't going to understand stand-up, and I knew he was too honest to lie about how he felt. (laughs) That's my guest, Jimmy O. Yang. He's the author of How to American, The Immigrant's Guide to Disappointing Your Parents, and it's our July selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. So you can hear right there how you were disappointing your parents. Nevertheless, you continued, and you've done quite well, aside from the role, the regular role on Silicon Valley, you've done some dramatic work uh, in a role that a lot of people in my neck of the woods here in Boston would recognize. Uh, You starred as Danny in the film Patriot's Day with a local Mm -hmm. guy that we like around here, Mark Wahlberg. And tell us about that, because 
that, that was really quite a turn for you. It's big screen. And you yeah. got your dad in the film with you. Oh, the, my The same God, dad yeah. who doesn't think very much of your comedy. <laughs> uh, the same dad who still wishes I'm a scientist. <laughs> That was um, that was the most rewarding thing I've done so far, Patriots Day. It's a based on real life story about the tragedy that happened uh, in 2013 about the Boston Marathon bombing. So all our characters are based on real people, and I had you know the luck and 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 the honor to really talk to Danny Mang, the guy that ended up being part of the people that saved the day during that whole ordeal. And he was just so great, and I just want to do right by him. I poured all my heart in it. I knew this was something that I cared about. And uh, it turned out to be really rewarding as an experience and as an actor, too, that finally, like, hey, you know, I might not have went to drama school, but I can do this. Like, this proved to myself and my parents, like, oh, my God, this is for real. Because Asian people, they might not understand stand-up comedy, but they know who Mark Wahlberg is. They know who Kevin Bacon is, who were both in the film. So when my dad met Kevin Bacon at the premiere, he was so happy. He was bugging me to, like, oh, my God, that's Mark Wahlberg. Can we go take a picture with him? Can we go take a selfie? I'm like, Dad, can I just have my moment, please? But, you know, he he was happy and... uh and like you said, I got him. I got him in the film. You know, uh, my dad became an actor after I did, because he was like, "Oh my God, it's so easy. You can do it. I can probably do it." So I'm like, "Fine, I'll sign you on my agent, and you can see how hard it is." And uh, it completely backfired on me because he started booking everything. <laughs> so now he's like, "Oh my God, it is so easy." But uh, this was his first big major motion picture, and uh, this role actually got him in SAG. So. He um he plays my dad in the movie and it's just really nice to share such a meaningful film with my father who I guess eventually came around on <laughs> being not disappointed at me anymore. Well, for people who don't remember uh Danny, um the real life Danny was carjacked by the car bombers and so you're playing mm-hmm. him and you got your dad in the film because the actor that they originally had hired to play your dad was speaking the wrong Chinese dialect and you wanted to make sure that it was correct so that the portrayal of Danny and his father would be right. And yep. I thought that was very important. It it reminds me of a conversation that we've had on this show quite a bit outside of our our book discussions and that's about the really the movement in Hollywood among Asian-American actors to not only get respect but better roles and to really speak up about some of the stereotyping that's being done there. I wonder how you feel about that movement and do you feel you're a part of it? Absolutely. I just shot this movie called Crazy Rich Asians, and that was so exciting. Literally, it's the first movie featuring a full Asian cast in 25 years since Joy Luck Club, first studio movie. So it's very important, and I really hope it does well. And and I just had the greatest experience shooting it. I became so proud, like way more proud, you know, to be Asian. Because you see the most beautiful, most talented, funniest Asian people all in one room trying to make something great, you know. And we just felt a nice camaraderie. It wasn't just like I'm the token Asian guy on this show or in this movie. And me, myself, by myself, have to represent all Asians because there's only five of us in all of television. You know, that pressure was off. I can just concentrate on my craft and be an actor because there's a whole spectrum of Asians in this movie. And it was just so fun. It was just such a great experience. Um, And in general, you know, my point of view might be a little different than, say, the American-born Asians because I was an immigrant myself, so I take a lot more pride in uh, playing kind of like the the fresh-off-the-boat immigrant characters. Uh, And I try to play them authentically, and it is authentic because that was my experience. Um, So 
I always try to step up from like my immigrant brothers, you know, and um, a lot of times people, maybe they have a beef with, you know, doing Asian characters with accents. I always think it's how you do it. Do you do it authentically or are you just kind of doing like a ching chong ching, whatever, you know, it's cliche accent, right? And for me, I always try to draw from authentic experiences, you know, and play a three-dimensional character like somebody like Danny Mang who has a thick accent, but he's based on real life and he turned out being a Chinese immigrant, he turned out to be an American hero in this very historic day in America and that's nothing that makes me more proud and Danny is a freaking hero to me. You know, mm -hmm. um, so playing those characters really meaningful to me. And at the end of the day, I don't think it's the accent itself that's not sexy. It's the perception of the accent. Like, why is it Sofia Vergara's accent is considered sexy? You know, uh, a French accent is considered, you know, sophisticated or British accent uh, is considered good craftsmanship by an actor. But when it comes to a Chinese accent, it's considered weird. Mm -hmm. um, so I, th I think we should look at it at that point of view of maybe doing more three-dimensional, sophisticated characters with accents instead of shying away from the accent altogether. I think it makes a difference to what you said at the beginning is whether or not you're the only one when there is a, a wide That's spectrum. Right. And so I want to play a clip from Crazy Rich Asians. This is the movie trailer. The movie's coming out later in the summer. So your family is rich? We're comfortable. That is exactly what a super rich person would say. I want money. 1.2 million. The Nick you're dating is Nick Young? Yeah, you guys know them or something? Hells yeah. They're just the biggest developers in all of Singapore. Damn, Rachel. It's like the Asian bachelor. These people aren't just rich. They're crazy rich. Now you really should have told me that you're like the Prince William of Asia. That's ridiculous. Much more of a Harry. <laughs> I love this clip. I can't wait to see this movie, and I can't wait to see you in it. I think it's going to be great, and it, it really is. It's funny, and it's got some other things to say. Just like your book, uh, and I'm speaking with Jimmy O. Yang, the author of How to American, The Immigrant's Guide to Disappointing Your Parents, because I want to just make sure that you have an opportunity to talk about, to really speak to the sort of divisive discourse that's going on now about immigrants in general. I mean, you got yeah. your citizenship uh, three years ago. You, you write movingly about it in your book. How do you respond to that? now um it's it's kind of sad in a way for me to see how politicized the immigration issue is it's either one side of the aisle or the other that's one of the reasons why i never picked a side in my book i just want to tell an honest story to inform people and let them see really what it's about and so they can come up with their own opinion i'm not preaching anything out there you know i just want to share what it was like for me and sometimes looking back it was hard you know, and when I see other immigrants, even when I'm in a Lyft or Uber ride, like I get it. I get the struggle and they appreciate it so much more because even if they're driving Uber and making $15 an hour, they might not have had that opportunity back home in China and Nigeria or wherever. And they're very grateful to just be in this land of opportunity. So for me, I have that same thing, too. Like every day I wake up here, I'm blessed that I'm able to do what I love for, for you know, money, right? Like as a career. So I just want people to kind of um, appreciate the immigrant mentality and see it for what it is in a very honest and humorous way that's not too heavy, right? Um, and come up with their own more informed opinions because I think a lot of times people 
are afraid or they think negatively of immigrants that people that didn't grow up the same way they did. It's either fear or because they have never met somebody like that and they don't understand what it's like. So I just want to share my honest story and hopefully it will help give people a better perspective. And if you still think the way you do or, you know, if you still don't like immigrants after that or whatever, I'm 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 not mad at you. You know, like that that's your prerogative. It just I want to share my story and hopefully in doing so it will inform people what it's like to be an immigrant. Well, it's a perfect July 4th story, of course, because, uh, as I said, you've written quite movingly about your experience of getting your citizenship. Let me say this. You're 30 years old, Jimmy O. Yang, and you're writing a memoir. That's what usually people write when they're way longer into the career. What are you going to write after this? I mean, this is you've written a memoir now at 30. Wow. I hope this is the beginning. I hope my career just don't crash and burn tomorrow. Well, if it does, I'll have a great memoir about drug rehab and stuff. So we can <laughs> we can maybe do that in the future. But, you know, that's why I never call the book a memoir. The title is kind of a joke in itself, How to American. You know, it's kind of like a self-help book in a way. But it's just sharing a story of the immigrant part of my life. Um, now, a part of me do is still very Chinese and the other part of me feels very American. So it's a different chapter of my life. And, and now my life is mostly about navigating through uh, the landscape of Hollywood and the politics there and, you know, trying to just be a good artist, whereas it's stand up, writing or acting. So it's a different chapter. And I just really felt it was fun for me personally, too. And I hope the readers will have fun reading it to hear a funny, authentic story about when I was 13 years old to when I was in high school to when I was a strip club DJ. Well, I had a lot of fun reading it. I know other people will as well. And I thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. Jimmy O. Yang's new memoir, however he describes it, is How to America, the Immigrant's Guide to Disappointing Your Parents. It's our July selection for Bookmark, the Under the Radar Book Club. The book is available in bookstores and online now. And you can see Jimmy on Silicon Valley, HBO's series, as well as Life of the Party with Melissa McCarthy and the upcoming Crazy Rich Asians. Well, that's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at news.wgbh.org slash UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Please write to us at undertheradar at wgbh.org. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Fakanda Loingafe is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.